Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Elliot Flynn, founder and CEO of Cubed. Cubed is a company that helps FinTech companies scale, but more importantly, avoid the very large failure rate that so many startups are plagued by. And with that, here's my interview with Elliot. Elliot, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks so much, Jason. Pleasure to be here. So Elliot Lamb of Cubed, tell us about Cubed. So Cubed was founded, as you said, because of the failure rates in FinTech. Really, we're the growth partners for FinTech businesses. We sit as operating partners, really rolling up our sleeves, jumping into the business. We're not consultants in your classic style. We make sure we get stuff done. We're connectors. We've got a large network through the industry, and we're also investors. Excellent. So we'll dive into that in a moment, but tell me about the history of Cubed and how it came to be. So if I look back from the start of my career, engineer by trade, started out as a, you know educated software engineer, computer scientist, spent 20 years working in banks, uh, including working in innovation labs, driving innovation labs to some of the world's largest banks, and really seeing, hey, look, I sort of described myself as a bit of a fintech assassin back then. They weren't called fintech at the time, but you know, you would take a small group of kids or a really cool idea, bring them into the fold, and then try and turn them into the bankers, which is the last thing any of them wanted to be. Or you would say to them, hey, look, let's, uh, let's bring you in. You come and give us some free proof of concepts and we'll promise you a rosy future and then you'll run out of money. And none of that really worked. So something that was play A for me. There was something wrong at that point. I then moved to the fintech side, uh, worked in some of the larger fintechs, grew a few of the fintechs. So created a couple of unicorns uh, along with the rest of the teams, uh, founded a couple of companies, some good, some failures, which is always the fun way of learning. I started a consultancy as well around how do we actually launch digital banking? How do we build an ecosystem around those pieces? And then after a couple more fintechs decided, you know what? I've got the playbooks. We've got a data model over the years that can predict the future success of and failure rates of these businesses. And really was bugged by this fact that there's all the good stats. 90% of fintechs fail. But the one that bothers me most is 75% of venture investments fail. That's not just saying that you know, you're killing hopes and dreams of the entrepreneurs. It's saying that 75% of the money is thrown away. But the one that really didn't sit well with me was that meant that innovation was running at 25% of optimum. And when you look at an industry that really is about scaling, growing, why is that? And so we, we built the data model, we built the team, we built the operating plans, and we formed Cube to help companies get away from that. And we do it on the entrepreneur founder side and also on the VC side. Okay, excellent. So let's let's dive into some of those stats. I mean, they're pretty staggering. 90% of fintech startups fail, whereas 75% of VC-backed companies fail. So what do you think the most common reasons for failure are? There's so many of them. Look, I think, I think the blame lies on both sides of the equation. Um, if you take it right back from the start, if you're a startup company, who tells you what you're going to do? And you've got to think about this, right? Especially first-time founders. They, they wake up every day and it's the biggest job they've ever had in their lives, the majority of the time. That's hard to do every single day. How do you then go and find product market fit? How do you go and find the right team? How do you go and drive it? There's all those pieces from an early failure. But I think what also comes into it is there is a funding cycle that's continuous as you grow a business. You're not a founder, just a founder. You're also a funder. So... When you are at a seed investment, you've got to start thinking about your Series A operating model. You've got to start thinking about what are you going to put in place? Who are the people you need? What is the strategy? And you've got that side of it from a growth on the founder side, but on the investor side, you also need strong due diligence. You also need to understand what is it you are investing in these companies for. And to be honest, sometimes it can be a bit of a game of lemons. You can see one good idea 
one investor will invest, so other investors will follow. But actually, even more dangerously, you'll see, hey, there's this company in this sub-segmentation that's been very successful. Let's find the next one of those and jump on the bandwagon. And it's not just the idea of the idea and pushing it forward and the great product. The great products actually can be hit and miss. It's actually about the team to execute it, to drive to that next level, making sure you're building the proper go-to-market strategy around it, making sure you have the right metrics. And the problem for me comes that most companies don't measure soon enough. They don't put the operating models in soon enough, and they don't put the rigor in soon enough. Um, I have a lot of conversations with founders who, hey, we're not a Series C company. Why should we be building all of these mechanisms in place? Well, actually, it's good practice. It allows you to really measure and understand where you're going to get the failure rates at an early, early stage. And you can start driving through the right behaviors. You know, and it, all the classics that come with not having product market fit, not having anything else are, are sort of plagued and underpinned by those different metrics. Yeah, it's, I've talked about this in the previous podcast, but too often these people get into this business because they essentially have a great idea and it's a, or they think it's a great idea and then they want to work on the widget, right? Like they're the engineers who want to work on building the tool. Right. And everything that comes around that beyond this with a successful business is, is staggering, right? All the all the operations that you could have the best piece of software in the world, but at the end of the day, you could run out of money. <laughs> you could have the wrong people in right. place. You could have no sales channel, all those things, right? So just worrying about the art is not good enough when it comes to distribution. So not surprising. I want something I want to ask you about too. I mean, I find it, there's, all, there's a real kind of, cultural mismatch between fintechs and and traditional finance, right? Traditional finance is very much used to, well, I mean, for various reasons, but when they talk to vendors, they, I'm going to use the old saying of no one gets fired for, for hiring Microsoft, which used to be no one got hired, fired for hiring IBM. <clears throat> They're used to basically not going out on a limb, to finding bulletproof systems that are, are, are resilient, that basically are proven by others and, and mature businesses in most cases. And when you have a bunch of guys in hoodies showing up saying, hey, we have this really novel thing that we could partner with you on and you know take you to the next level on something, and they're just showing you wireframes and slide decks, the fintech sector or the technology sector's smart move is to basically say, let's find a strategic partner to basically build this with us. The traditional sector is saying, well, come back when it's done. You know, Is that a, is that a common dichotomy you think that gets in the way? And is there ways to, to kind of work through that? Yeah, I do. It happens a lot. I think... I think the problem actually is it's getting better, right? And I, let me give you an example. If I go back, I was giving, when would it be? Five years ago, I was in London. I went to, I don't remain nameless. I went to a tier one bank in London. I was in a board meeting and I was presenting around future of digital banking. What is your strategy? I then left the meeting, suited and booted, went to speak at a fintech startup event in the city in London, walked up on stage in a suit. Everybody's sitting there with hoodies looking at me like I'm some sort of weirdo from another planet. And it, it struck me at the time because we, we had nothing in common. We couldn't speak. We, even though there was sort of an obvious, hey, I'm trying to help you guys, I couldn't have walked into the board meeting in a hoodie, but actually it was equally as badly sitting there because I, I lost the audience before I even started speaking. And there, it's a small example of if you're not even trusting people who dress differently to you, you know, using your hoodie example, there's got to be a, there's got to be a different way of doing this. Now, I think there's things have improved. Accelerators, incubators, everything's moved things a little bit forward, especially the ones that are sponsored by the banks. And some banks do very well at this. But when you get, actually, I think the bigger problem now is when you get into the processes, procurement processes, getting on the preferred supplier list, all that sort of thing, that's when you hit an impasse. That's when you pass the, 
hey, this is a cool innovation. How do we drive this forward? It's a bit of a, a bit of a play we we make. We don't we we never set out to do this, but actually pull ourselves in as advisors sometimes to bring the credibility of working in the banks, understanding how the bigger players work. People don't pitch the right value. So they go in with a, hey, here's some cool technology. And this is a problem. And actually coming back to the product market fit, this is a problem a lot of people have. They go and sell uh, to start with and go, we've got the coolest technology because we're a cool technology company. Let's go and sell to people who want to buy cool technology. Guess what? Those people who want to buy cool technology are going to make you do different things that are even cooler and go and completely bastardize your roadmap. The people you want to sell to are the ones you go, hey, we've got cool technology, but don't worry about that. Here is the specific business value we're adding that's going to make the life of you and your customers better. Here is how we position it, and here is the business model that means you're going to make money out of it. Now, you don't even need the customers at that point. You can position that, find the town, get this constrained market, then you can go after that and start doing the marketing to hit them. People miss that very simple bit out of the model quite a lot. They just go and try and sell pure tech. What happens then is they do that for a while, they make a certain amount of money, certain amount of customers thinking they're referenceable, but actually you'll find they've got seven customers using seven different products, seven different solutions. And that's where you start to lose the scalability point of it all. That's- I, I see that all too often. You know, the, the entire curation of, of knowing when to say no to a possible sale, which is hard at that stage. If you're not careful about that, like you'll get left down the path of destruction where you're basically becoming a custom dev shop for the one client. And then you have something that's not going to work anywhere else. It doesn't I was going to say, right? right? Yeah, no, it doesn't. So let me ask you something. How do you, as a consultant, like help prevent that from happening? Because that's got to be a difficult conversation. Like we got this large company, we're hoping to acquire all this, all this business. They've given us some, you know, money to do X, Y, Z, but they need these hyper-specific things that may not scale elsewhere. How do you eventually stop that cycle and, and get people to basically say, look, you know, <laughs> knowing where to say no is valuable. How do we accomplish the same thing else another way? So you, you, again, it comes back to you have you need to understand what your value proposition is. And you're, you can't be all things to all people. You take that value proposition, you have a proper go-to-market strategy. You work out, hey, where could we sell to? What is, what is the total addressable market? What is the reason they want to buy? What is the competitive landscape? How do we differentiate? What is the bit that actually looks the most sensible to us? And it's really thinking about that because people fall straight into execution. Okay, so they go after the, hey, we can sell this to these people. This looks cool. We can have a nice logo. We can drive it forward. But if you start and be more strategic and not jump straight into execution, yeah, of course, it's difficult to start with. You walk away from money. Things take longer. But actually, when you you look at what is the you know cost of customer acquisition when you're at customer 7, 8, 15, it becomes a lot more logical. Now, again, it's educating people that it's the first time they've ever done this. It's a different way of thinking. Um, I think the whole entrepreneurial experience is about, I'll tell you where I think the most, the, the most successful companies are the ones that actually listen to people who may have been there, seen it, done it, can take advice and learn from others' mistakes and actually, as importantly, learn from their own mistakes. Because I've seen several occasions where people will make that mistake around, hey, we're going to go and sell this. They'll take a step back. They'll say, actually, we now have a definite strategy. This is how we're going to position. But then make the same mistake as soon as somebody's put the check on the table. It, it's a very, very easy thing to fall into. And they just you just have to educate people not to fall into that trap. You burn money. So let's talk about engaging with your company. Okay. So at what stage do you typically come across um, venture capital fintech companies? And you know, what's the engage, typical engagement? That might be a loaded question because it might be very different every time. But what does the typical engagement look like for you? So let's, let's take it from both sides. If it's from the venture capitalist side, we can be brought in to do a couple of things. Three reasons we usually get involved to start with. One, there's an opportunity they want help with due diligence. 
and they've got to know us through network. And we, we, we bring some specific due diligence around go-to-market, how can you actually sell, scale the business and take it to the next level. It can be a portfolio review. So they've got companies, some are good, some are bad. Hey, can you come in and help us for a few months? And you know, with the VC, it's generally three to six months. Have a look at our, our companies, tell us what you think, where, where we got strength, where we got weaknesses. And then the third and unfortunate one is the, the turnaround. So they've got a company that, you know, they've given them money. The money's not been spent wisely. The team's not the right team. They're burning money quickly. They're not selling to the right customers, not making profit. Please tell us what's wrong. Peel back the, the skin and let's have a look what's under there. That's, that's the way we get with the VCs. From the entrepreneur side, from the founder side, one is by the VCs. We also pick a lot of speaking events. People may listen to this, contact us. But we generally get pulled in either just before or just after a funding cycle because right. that's where you're having the step up, right? And I, I see this as a continuous sort of raise and grow profile. And so you're always in fundraising or fund spending stroke growth. And it's a constant step up and a constant move, reset, drive, you know, and they're the saying, what got you to where you are now is not what's going to get you to where you need to be. That could not be more true in these funding cycles. And coming back to the, the earlier points around where people make um, bad decisions on customers or positioning and those sort of things, the worst mistake a lot of founders make is selecting the wrong investors. They will constantly chase the bigger check, the bigger valuation, the bigger name, the bigger logo. Honestly, if, if there was one bit of advice to any founder out there, if you're going to take investment, make sure you find out who's giving you the money, what they've done previously, get references from their other investments, and find out who is going to sit on your board. Interview that person and see what they're going to do. Um, and honestly, we get pulled in and asked, hey, I've got money, I need to spend it wisely, or I need to raise money, how do I get it? Nobody will give me money, what have I got wrong? That's really where we come into the equation. Yeah, it's funny. So much of what you're saying, you know, after doing this podcast for almost 300 episodes resonates with so much of the experience I've seen of these fintechs go through, you know, that that big check thing, it's it's a curse in two ways, right? It's not just like who's going to be involved, but you take the bigger the check you get, the bigger the milestones that to be hit to unlock the next round of funding. As I always tell these people, like the only job of a venture capital backed company is to unlock the next round of funding by hitting your milestones. Like that's it. Without that, you're collapsing. So, and, and I think I often... And it was an episode we had with a venture capitalist who basically talked about should you be taking our money? And it's if there's a certain type of company that should take VC money, and there's a certain they shouldn't, because the second you get on that treadmill, you are not getting off anytime soon. And it's very frustrating, right. especially for technical founders to spend six months of a, of a year, uh, six months every 18 months going out, just basically doing a dog and pony show for more money. That's not why most of them got into the business, and but that's the reality of it. Yep. It okay. is. And look, it gets. Sorry, it gets even more complex, right? Because the more investment you take, you're right, it always raises the ball to that next level. And there, there comes a point, I think, in every fintech I've ever seen, can be the first investor, can be when they get to Series E. You'll always get some form of investor come in who is brutal and is, is absolutely going to take you to hell on a daily basis if you don't make your numbers. Because they've invested a lot of money, it's a high risk, whatever it may be. That's when it goes from being that six months out of 18 to being the full 18-month cycle. And that's where a lot of people really fall down. Yeah. And it's um, you're forcing a lot of weird directions. It can force uh, key people. It can force in, quote, unquote, adult supervision. You name it. All kinds of things you never planned on. All right. So you get involved at that stage. I got to say, where are, the, where are the most common issues you see uh, amongst these companies? And you know, give me some methodologies for, for course correction. Yeah. I mean, look, the... The most common is the first-time founder 
syndrome, which can come in so many ways. Ego is a is a brutal and honest approach, and and we deal with it with brutal honesty. You know, I see. I sometimes think I'm a, a CEO whisperer, founder whisperer, or actually sometimes group of founders, marriage guidance counselor. That's always an interesting position to be put in. That that look methodology is just you need to sit down with them, talk, show them where things are going, and the problem you have with a founder led company is. We move away in our model from having a, we don't measure culture. We measure a company's personality. It's almost like a Myers-Briggs type thing we use as a model. And we, we look at it and say, the culture of a company is really turning into a personality. And that personality can be measured. And the, the personality at the start always takes on the founders. And uh, I spoke about it a few times recently. I think one of the most important things you can do in those sort of scenarios and it's the last thing any founder ever really hires at proper C-level is bringing a proper HR person. It's amazing the impact you can have with a very strong HR people person in there. Forget about the well, fact that they are... Their job. That's the other thing with founder-led companies well, is too often the cult of personality drives, you know, is going to bulldoze other people. Correct. And that's, and that's the biggest challenge we ever see is you can, you can have a company of, literally I've seen it up to 200 people, where it's led by one ego, one personality who is going to drive and run through this, is going to destroy a lot of people, and you, people won't stand up to them. And that's a huge, huge problem. You, you bring in talent, you pay well for it, but actually they're too scared, too, I don't know what, they, they just don't give you the full capability they have because there's, there's too much that they need to hide from, too much that they're scared of losing their jobs, scared of moving to that next level. That is the fundamental we see a lot of the time. The other thing which I think is interesting and happens a lot more than people think. Coming back to the, the choosing the right board members, choosing the right investors. I'm not a fan of a lot of investors who will sit there on a board and just say, is my investment getting bigger or less? Give me the KPIs, give me the metrics. Yeah. There's got to be a value add, right? If they're not helping you to think, to operate or to build, you've got the wrong investors. And Again, people don't think about that. And that's that's from the investors to blame as much as it is from the founders. They have to add something to this business. They can't be passengers. That to me is a huge, huge problem. Yeah, um, the difference between getting the right strategic investors versus getting just financial investors is night and day. Like the strategic investors come with potential contracts. They come with contacts. They come with the credibility to basically say, wait a sec, you know, if this company's involved with it, then this is their... Not only do they have a standard mainline business, traditional mainline business that they're, they're that they understand, they understand enough for this company to say, hey, there's something here that can help our core business. Like it's it is really such a it's not about return in those instances. It's about amplification of the return to other levels of business. And that is such an endorsement and such a resource that wherever possible, that's the kind of money you want. Absolutely. The other two places I'll just very quickly say where I think a lot of people go wrong. And this this happens. It's usually a pivot for them. This is around pricing, right? Their pricing positioning. People not going for a value side of things, not really looking at, hey, how do we develop value? How do we show value? How do we communicate value? In everything they do. Once you can put a, a value engineering type approach into an organization from start to end, you, you see massive changes in the way that things are positioned, the way things, people see things and operate. And then a massively frustrating one for me. We we have a we have a standard operator model that basically says, hey, have the right GTM alignment between product marketing sales, make sure you hire the right people, enable them, make sure you've got the right pipeline, forecast accurately, blah, 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 execute, execute. So many people fall down on the enablement side of things. 
They will hire good people, expensive people, people who have been successful, and then just say, hey, here's your laptop, get on with it, thanks very much. It is such a critical thing to enable those people to the way you think, the way you operate, the way you differentiate, how you build your business. And you see really basic things put in place quite often. Hey, here are our six values, read the pamphlet. Hey, look at our website, look at our Notion page, whatever it may be. But nothing beats getting people to sit down, work through, hey, how does this work? Do it cross-functional. Because then you, you build the DNA of actually how the organization builds and it's, you know, you, you coach, buddy system and everything. But actually, the cross-functional piece really helps that you've got a product guy who could be at mid-level with a sales guy who's at junior level. They connect as soon as they join the organization. They start to see the value of what each other does. And you get away from that, hey, tech versus sales, marketing versus sales, product versus tech delivery, whatever it may be. That to me is a huge problem because as soon as you start to scale, those gaps suddenly get bigger. And it frustrates me how many times we go in somewhere and it just comes back to, just a minute, talk me through the onboarding of these people. How do you actually get them to understand their business? What does the first six months look like? And it's, it's usually hugely missed. So many issues there. I want to come back to some of those issues in a minute. But first, let's, let's go back to why is it you think that the failure rate in fintech is worse than the general VC market alone? That's a great question. I, mean, I got back to my point around. I'd love to hear you. <laughs> yeah, look, I know, look, I'm, I'm not going to say, I think it's, I think there's one thing that I will say is that it's actually overanalyzed compared to most of the other sectors when it comes mm. from the tech sectors, right? So I don't, do I think that health tech, fintech, there's a lot of tech that, that gets it. Look, I think fintech is quite a mature market entry point. And I think it comes back to the lemming point earlier where I think the due diligence is potentially not as strong as it should be from a lot of the investors. And you are lacking the position we look for ourselves in, right? That operating partners, more technology, great technology understanding, more money. Hey, here's the money. Here's what we're going to do with it. Who takes responsibility in that equation for making sure the money is spent correctly and driven correctly? I think it very much the cycle of funding goes so quick in the fintech world. You know, you're talking 18 month cycles to get to that next stage and that next stage and that next stage. There's always a constant learning reset and growth. I think that somebody owning that when it's a first time founder and let's, let's, let's be honest. Okay. A first time founder going for a series A round, probably going to get an inexperienced investor potentially sitting on their first board because it's a small company potentially doesn't have a lot of stay with inside their VC organization if it's a larger organization. All they've got is a playbook. They go with and say, hey, this is what you've got to give me as a return on my investment. This is what I'm aiming for. Due diligence, as I say, can be a little bit light. They can look at the... I always find it amazing. Look, I'm a technologist's background. The tech is always a lot more crucially and deeply diligent, actually, I think, than the go-to-market sales product side of things. And I think that that is an issue. And then again, keeping it measured and honest and understanding where this goes and then getting the priority to really make those calls quick when that short 18-month cycle, I think that's where the failure comes from. Because there's a lot of, again, I don't want to upset everybody I work with, but there's a lot of amateurs on each side of the equation. And there's generally no real grown-ups that are driving that conversation through. And I was, I, again, sorry to long answer, but I was That's talking to somebody, it's sort, of where, it's sort of where we come from, from Cube. Somebody, I described somebody what we do at Cube, and somebody said, it's the, it's, oh my God, I get it. It's the bane for startups. And I, ne I never really pictured it that way because, you know, we, all, we actively say we're not consultants. 
but somebody who can come in there and sort of give the, look, this is what good looks like to both sides of the equation, to the entire ecosystem and say, here is the operating model. Here's the way we do this. Here are the obvious things that's going to go wrong. There's not enough people looking for those leading indicators of where things are going to go wrong. But when they go wrong, they go wrong very quickly and it's very expensive. Yeah, I mean, I also think that in general, fintech is, a, in its, by its nature, is one of scale, right? And if you don't, if you don't achieve large amounts of scale, you're not going to succeed, right? Like it, it's you can't get by on a handful of enterprise contracts. You know, you need you need basically to get, especially in the consumer fintech sector, you need enormous amounts of scale because your margins are super thin. Because typically, your your value proposition, right? So it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's hard to put it across the board, but I think that that. That's what's one of the challenges. Now, one of the things I want to turn back to, you kind of hit on it a couple of times, but specifically around culture. And I think that, unfortunately, I think the the mythos that exists around the tech founder is actually a negative detriment in so many ways, right? Because you see these stories of you know people doing incredibly brash things and and being incredibly successful, like Zuckerberg going into VC meetings in his his pajamas as like a flex, or whatever it is, like all this other stuff, but. Those are the success stories. We're not looking at the failure rate of uh, you know how many people had the same kind of attitudes and got absolutely nowhere. And the failure rate, as we just pointed out, is ninety percent, right? So, so maybe we should be worried about not what the people who were successful did, but also the people who failed did. And I think, unfortunately, so much of that is a caught up in the mythos of like move fast and break things, and that's fine. We can do stuff and along with the entire let's call it engineering kind of belief that they can fix anything. Because the number of times I sit with fintechs, I'm like, well, you know, that's not really how it's done. Like, you should be like, no problem, we can do that. Like, it's just hand-waving, we can code anything attitude, right? How much do you think that that level of, that level, you know, that, that just general cultural understanding is, is a negative, quite honestly? It's a huge negative, but it, but it, it has massive repercussions as well. And if I, I look, I'm, I'm amazed that we, we spend a lot of time with all the fintechs. I'm amazed how many times I walk in somewhere and there's a huge lack of A players, you know, you would think, hey, fintech, it's cool, it's banking, it's technology, we're going to attract some really smart people, we're going to bring them in. Not always the case. There were usually very, very few what I would consider really sharp A players in a lot of these organizations. And I think it's because, you know, the brashness of the founder mentality that, hey, we can achieve anything. It's, it's, you've got to be a certain type of character to want to be a founder, a certain type of character to join a startup and drive it forward. There's no stability in it. There's a lot of upside, a lot of opportunity. But it can grind you down very quickly. And you can look at how this brings itself out as, as things change and as, as companies grow. Talked earlier about, you know, it's not where you are, where the people that got you to where you are are not always the ones that are going to get you to that next place. What a lot of founders do is they stay very loyal, overly loyal quite often to those early employees. And look, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they're their safe space. They surround themselves by yes people rather than actually people who are actually going to change what's going to happen in the world and how we're going to drive to that next level. And I honestly think, I'll tell you what we do, right? So we, I can tell you, if you are Series A company, Series B, we can do a little bit with, with Seed, but actually Series A, Series B company, give me your last two board decks. Get me, let me see your pipeline. We have 12 metrics we use where I can see your forecast accuracy and other few things. And let me speak to six people in your organization and I'll tell you where you're going to fail. Because, and do you know where most of it comes from? I can look at your right. board decks and I can say, the board decks usually tell you where they're lying to investors. Because let's be honest, nobody's transparent. There's a lack of transparency because they're sort of like, hey, we don't want to tell them. And that's down to the fact they're not adding value. You can unpack that all day. Forecast accuracy tells you 
what their operations look like. But interviewing three to six people in that organization will instantly tell you the culture. It will tell you the personality. It will tell you all the problems there is in that. You don't need to be a psychologist to feedback exactly where things are broken at that point because you can take the data points from the first two, very, very briefly talk about it, and they will they will just give you everything you could possibly ever want to know and so much more. And they, they will pretty much always tell you where things are broken. And it's usually down to communication or a, an inner circle is always there. There's people who are new that are either doing it wrong, people that have been there too long. It's always, it's always down to personalities and people. Yeah. It, uh, well, I mean, at the end of the day, those are the ones you're going to execute. So the other question I want to come back to you is specifically around pricing. You said that that was a key concern. Now, this is notoriously a difficult thing in the technology sphere, right? Like, it was, it was Andreessen or someone said, like, I can pretty much guarantee you're going to get it wrong the first time. So talk to me about how you consult in on pricing and how where the, where the pitfalls are and how you correct for them. So first of all, you need what we you know, come back to the product market that you actually need something that makes sense for people to buy it from you and you need a market you're going to go after. Um, there's, there's two things you pull into this. One is what is the value you can offer to the client? And, and secondly is what is the competitive positioning? Now, a lot of people get their pricing wrong for two reasons. One is they think the pricing they had 12 months ago is the same pricing they should have now. Even, you know, especially in an early stage, that's never the case. Your, your early pricing is always wrong. Or uh, I'd love to find one that wasn't, but it's always wrong in my experience. Secondly, you underplay the value or come to the value from a, from a wrong angle. Again, value engineering is a real specific skill. It's a science. And people try and play into it where they think that, again, it comes back to the tech founder mentality, which is, we've got the coolest technology. We can charge more money for it. No, you can't. What you can charge more money for is... What is the value you're delivering to your customer or they can deliver to their end customers, be it revenue, be it cost savings, be it risk reduction, whatever it may be. And you need to understand how that differentiates from the competition and what are you really differentiating it. It's amazing how many people, they fill in Harvey balls, okay? And they go, we are fully solid and we're great at absolutely everything. None of our competition can do everything we can do. Guess what? Your competition has exactly the same job with theirs completely full and you half empty. And you need to give them a reality check on that. And you really need to, to pull back on what is, the, what is the value. And the way to do that is to talk to the customers. Like start actually asking customers what are the value. Why did you buy from us? Why did you not buy from us? Win and, and loss analysis. Again, in early stage startups, it's almost people are embarrassed to ask somebody why they didn't buy from them. And even stranger is they're almost more embarrassed to ask why did you buy from us? Because then you will start to bring a pattern of actually what is the value they see in it rather than being cool technology, where do they see that it's worth the money you're charging for it? It's, um, yeah, you know, I find the, every business has the, our baby's beautiful syndrome, which they're not always that beautiful or beautiful at all, but I find it's more endemic in technology when they're so close to it. Right. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I want to ask then on a positive note, and this has been fascinating. I think it's also required listening for anyone who's a tech startup to understand where they're going wrong. First question I have for you is what's, if you had one wish for something to change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? This is the one that stumps everybody. I got to, I maybe need to know this. Wow. No, no, actually, I, I, I do know the answer. I, can, I, can, I know the answer because I... Wish it all the time? I was, <laughs> no, I do wish it all the time. And actually, I've asked this, the last four speaking events I've done, I've asked this question and it just, everybody breaks down into laughter. And it's a room we're full of investors, entrepreneurs, regulators, and everything else. And I stand up and say, 
who would like to stand on this stage and be completely honest about how they feel about everybody else in the room and talk to me about your biggest challenges and the way that you think everybody else should do things differently. There is no transparency in this industry. No. People laugh their heads off and it's, there's not even base transparency. I talked about board decks, right? Amazes me when I sometimes, look, we, we are, I sometimes sit on, in a weird position of being on the VC side and on the founder side if we're, we're pulled in to do these pieces. And it's interesting from both sides is that huge lack of transparency or understanding or anything. It's like, oh, we can't tell them that because like, well, you can. Everybody's trying to drive in the same direction. And until you have that transparency, you're going to be pulling the pole opposite sides. And that, that kills me. That will definitely be my one wish. Yeah, it's interesting. It's especially amongst people kind of like who get turned to for, for consulting advice. Like, I mean, this is speaking from personal experience. Like we talk to each other in most cases, right? But the technology companies yeah. don't want to be necessarily open with us. So the reality is, is that when one of us thinks that they're getting BS, everybody finds out they're getting BS, right? And then it becomes a, a conversation as to whether or not we can trust those people or not, right? So I feel like that that attitude pays is so many, you know, for what they're, they're playing defense in their minds, when in actuality, they're actually moving backwards, quite honestly, because without that transparency, without knowing if what you're claiming you can do is nothing more than vaporware or Figma wireframes, if you can't give me a direct answer, show me it works. I'm just going to assume it doesn't, right? And and then I'm going to know I can't take your word for it. You know, and that that speaks to so many aspects of the business. Uh, everything from you know, if I can't trust you there, really, that hockey stick growth chart that you're projecting for the next five years is starting to look a lot less realistic to me. So it's uh, it's well, well it, even, it even starts it even starts there, right? In the pitch decks of getting funding, it's like, hey, this is what we're definitely going to achieve over the next five years. You, you so many people fall into that trap. It's like. I often ask them personally, like, okay, but you be- show me what, how are you going to do this? Do you believe this before you go and put this in front of people? It's like, but we have to give our strong growth. We have to show this. I'm like, okay, but you do realize you're actually being measured against this. And your next funding round, the one after that, is going to be at risk if you are absolutely making this up at the right. moment. If you want Again, to kill yourself at the angel round, go right ahead because, you know, exactly. when none of your angels want to come back because you absolutely failed to hit any of your milestones, you know, good luck convincing a new series of Patsy's, pardon me, Patsy's funny, funny slip, uh, the new series of Patsy's to basically take your word for it. Right. right. So, all right. Second question I have for you is what's been the biggest challenge in the company to where it is to date? Scale. Look, we know different to everybody else. The universal um, challenge, right? Uh, look, we, we're fortunate because we had seven years to work out our product market fit before we even got here because we've, we've been playing the game from both sides for quite a while. So we were an advantage. We knew our playbooks where we got proof points. So look, the, the usual problems people would have, you know, first investment, you know, driving that forward, getting relationships, getting communication, blah, blah, blah. We, we bypassed it. It was when you start to scale faster than we planned and we see just a minute, this really is better than we thought it was. We knew this was great, but the uptake is far better. To make sure you stay at the right place and say no to customers. You came back to this earlier, right? We have the same problem. We have to say no to customers because if we can't deliver the right level of service with the right people, we're going to kill ourselves as a company. We, as soon as we get a bad reputation and what we do, as soon as we don't, we say that we can say, hey, look, 75% failure rates, we believe we're quite bullish. We can get to a 75% success rate if you have us involved. And we, we operate that way. We can't take a risk on bringing in junior people, people we don't trust, people don't understand how this works and say, hey, can we use our model and try and drive it forward? That's our biggest challenge. It, it remains our biggest challenge. We can get customers, we can, we can build this business very quickly, but we need to do it the right way. Yep. 
All right. And the last question is what, what keeps you getting up in the morning every day to keep on fighting the good fight and excites you about what it is you're working on? For making a difference, honestly, when, when I, when I first meet entrepreneurs, we, we always go through this sort of a, you know, it's, it's a brilliant curve. You always go through the, we don't need you. We don't need you. Oh, we need you. Oh, we see the value you're adding. We can see where you're at. It's, it's almost like being a parent and we get them to a certain point where we can see they're almost repeating the things we've told them, using the models we've told them in, and telling their staff that, hey, we need to do this is the way we drive this forward. Seeing that they're, you know, when we take a company and it's on a, either a failure cycle and we can fix it and move it forward, or if they're at 20% growth and we can move them to 60% growth, those things for me, every single little one of those is that step towards 75% success, not 75% failure. And for me, that's a little bit of a win every day. And honestly, I end up with, look, not everything's perfect, but I can probably point at any given day to five, six, 10 little wins that I see in our companies. And I think, you know what, we made a difference there and that can drive forward. We're going to make the market better. We're going to increase innovation. Excellent. Elliot, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. And uh... Where can people find you? Uh, so uh, you can find us at cubes.company. Obviously, all the usual channels on LinkedIn and everywhere else. Excellent. Um, anybody reach out, we're always available. So thank you so much. So that was today's podcast episode with uh, Elliot Lim. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you're a fintech founder, take the sage words <laughs> to heart. Failure rates of that level uh, should be enough to give anyone pause as to what they, what they think is true is true. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.